you've got a church Bible in front of you, um, we're on page 918. Um, you'll know the words because it's the Lord's Prayer. We're in our final um, look at this. I'm just going to read verses 9 to 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Just watch the screen for a moment. without the proper checks so why drive without them always check your tires fuel and oil i don't know if you've seen that advert that's been on the radio and it's been on the tv over winter always check your car before you drive do you always do that no well there's the advert from highways england encouraging you to do that um our um small car. We've got a Fiesta that's seven years old, and it went in for an MOT about three weeks ago. I don't know about you, but if you've got a car, particularly a car that's getting on a bit, that's going in for an MOT, you get nervous when it goes in? Anyone get nervous when their car goes in for an MOT? And we were there saying, we think there's a big bill coming. We had no expert knowledge of this, but we just thought there was a big bill coming. You know, the shock absorbers, brake discs, something must have gone on this car. So it goes into the garage. We're then um, getting on with our daily life, thinking the phone call is going to come. Brian is going to be on the phone from the garage saying, it's 500 pounds, do you want me to go ahead? Anyway, the phone call does come. And the phone call comes at 4 p.m. to say, your car has passed its MOT with no advisories. Whoa, exciting times we live in. And then... I don't know if you ever do this, I get this sudden warm feeling to an inanimate object. I suddenly start feeling, well done, little car. You've done me proud, as if it's the car that has sort of made itself pass its MOT. Life is full of tests, isn't it? Life is full of tests. As human beings, we're tested from the moment we are born, quite often right the way through our lives, medically. We have our ears tested, our eyes tested, our teeth sadly have to be tested regularly to ensure that they're in good health. We test educationally, don't we? Again, right from an early age, we test children right the way through their lives. As you go financially, if you want to get a mortgage, you will have to go through some kind of financial check. We do all kinds of testing. My mum and dad are here this morning, so they will remember this event that I'm going to tell you about. Um, And it happened when my brother, I think, was about 17 years old. I was six at the time. My brother is great at making things. So anything out of wood, he can just turn his hand to anything. He also used to build cars in the cellar and, and all kinds of random things like that. But this particular time, he made a sledge. And it was back in the years when you used to get a really decent snowfall in the winter. And so he'd made this sledge that he claimed was the best sledge ever. And he claimed it was invincible. You couldn't destroy this sledge. So on the first snowfall, after he'd made this sledge, we took it out for a run. 
If you know Stockport, we went to Bramwell Park. There's a nice big slope down there. There's a lake at the bottom. That doesn't come into this story. But there is a slope, and you go down. And he took the sledge down, this untried, untested, invincible sledge. What happened on the first run? It collapsed. And I can still remember him to this day almost going into the lake at the bottom, not quite. If we don't test things, we simply don't know whether they're up to standard, do we? We simply don't know whether they're going to be resilient enough to last. Simon, if we just have the, the PowerPoint up, please. So today, we're going to come to the final part of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This bit right at the end. Now, just for the observant amongst us, you may be thinking, well, what's happened to the end of the Lord's Prayer? You know, when we pray it, we put an extra line on the end, don't we? For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Where's that? Why is that not in Matthew? And it's not in Luke either, if you look in the NIV, in the, the new international version of it anyway. The reason being is the earliest manuscripts that we have don't have those lines in it. But if you fast forward about a century or a century and a half, in a book called the Didache, which was written probably mid-second century, the early church has added these lines to it as a kind of rounding off of the prayer. We don't know whether they're Jesus' words or not. So they're not in the Bible, but they're great words to pray. So we keep praying them, we just won't look at them in a sermon. So we're left with this as the ending of the prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, or evil, it could be either. And what we find here is that Jesus, in this prayer, he never glosses over difficult questions. He doesn't tell us to pray some kind of nice prayer with a, with a uh, sort of really simple, peaceful ending. But it's a prayer that grapples with real problems. And we're looking this morning at the problem of being drawn away from God and the issues, the evil that would seek to draw us from God. So if you like, the push factor and the pull factor. So let's look first at leaders not into temptation. First thing that hits us between the eyes is this is the first part of this prayer where we're praying for God not to do something. We're praying for an opposite, if you like. This is not a positive prayer. Now, every now and again, I come home and Claire will say to me something along these lines. Or it might be um, Claire comes home and I say to her something along these lines. Don't be cross, but... And then the name of either the ch- one of the children or the dog or something else will go in there. And some event has happened in home life that means that I might get cross about it. What does that tell you about me? Go on, somebody give me an answer. Thanks, Linda. <laughs> that I've got a short fuse. Well, actually, yes, it probably... What it does is it tells you that there is a capacity within me to get cross. That there will be times. Otherwise, there'd be no need for Claire to say it to me or for me to say it to her. And I'm sure we are all the same, aren't we? You know, like if I come home and suddenly six plates have been broken on the floor because somebody's been messing around, I might get a bit cross about it. And I, but that, that saying, don't get cross, indicates that somehow my wrath needs to be soothed away and averted. So what we find here is when we're praying, do not lead us into temptation or trial, that there are times when God leads his people to be tested, where God will test and try our faith. 
Now, we tend to think of temptation in the English version of the word anyway as this. You know, you're round at your friend's house, they've made this delicious chocolate cake, you've had already one enormous piece, and they're there, and they say, go on, have another piece of cake. And you say, oh, no, I mustn't. Oh, oh well, okay, then. And all willpower goes to the wind, and you're there, and you enjoy a second piece of chocolate cake. Or you may think of temptation as being something slightly more serious, a kind of pull of something sinful that pulls us away from the things of God and pulls us into doing something else. Or we may think that actually that means that God is a bit like this. He's like somebody who then puts banana skins in our path and that God is the one who is leading us to sin. God isn't like that. I don't believe God is the God of the banana skins who deliberately tries to trip us up. So what do we make of this verse? Lead us not into temptation. One really important rule as we interpret the Bible is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So we let the Bible interpret itself. And if there is something very clear in one part of Scripture and it's not particularly clear in the other, we let the clarity of one verse speak into the other. So here we go. This is from James 1 verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So what are we to make of this word, temptation? What is actually going on here? I don't want to get too technical, and I'll try not to send you to sleep, but we do need to look at the word temptation. This is for all you Greek speakers up there. I thought I'd put it in the Greek as well. Parasmos, this word that is in our Bibles translated as temptation, doesn't mean temptation in the way that we think of it. It's not temptation to the other piece of chocolate cake, but it's temptation in the sense of trial or even crisis. Dangerous places where we are pulled away from God. If you've got a good news Bible in front of you today, if anyone's got a good news, you know, the one with the nice little pencil drawings in, it will say, do not lead us to a place of trial. If you've got an NRSV in front of you, it also says the same. Other commentators have opted for that word instead. As Jesus taught and as Jesus ministered, he would often tell people that a time of trial was coming. A time of intense testing was on the horizon. Now we can read those passages and we can think, well, that's all about the end of time. Let's push that off until just before the second coming. And yes, that is something we have to be very real about, that there will come that time of trial. But for Jesus' first followers, the time of testing was literally round the corner. You get to Acts chapter 7, literally a few years later, and what do we find happened to Stephen? He's martyred as the first person to die for his faith as a believer in Jesus as the Son of God. The testing came early. One writer has suggested this is a good way of understanding this particular verse. Keep us from being plunged into a crisis we can't handle. It's a bit more than the chocolate cake, isn't it? bit more than the chocolate cake. Keep us from being plunged into that which we can't handle. Now, we also have to put this idea of testing into a bit more biblical sort of framework and to see what else the Bible says about testing. Now, testing can be good, can't it? You want your car to have an MOT. You want to know if there is something wrong with you or if there isn't something wrong with you. And just as in those kind of ways, so the testing of our faith is a good thing. Because actually, if you're not tested, you don't know whether your faith is real or not. 
and you're just sort of guessing and hoping, but you don't actually know. And so we find at times people will pray that God will test them. Here's David writing in Psalm 26. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Test me. See if I am real. See if my faith in you is genuine. Or this from James 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I don't know if you find it a joy, the thought of being tested. I don't know if you find the thought of going through a trial as something that really sort of just sort of makes you think, oh, great, you know, that's coming up. I can't wait for that testing process. Probably not. But it is something God does to his people. He tests us and he tries us. Looking back through the Bible, Abraham was tested by God, wasn't he? As Isaac was there on the altar. He was tested to the point of sacrificing his son. Job was tempted to lie down and curse God and die. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. His faithfulness tested to his heavenly father. Jesus in Gethsemane was tested to the point where he was crying out to God, if there is any other way of salvation but the way of Calvary, but not my will, but yours. But it was a testing. Without exception, those events are also, if you like, times of crisis, aren't they? When you think what Abraham went through, everything he probably knew about God, everything he thought in you, put to the test, would God make him sacrifice his son? And then God says, no, don't do it. The testing is over. Or you think of Job. You know, Job had been this wealthy man. Everything had been taken from him. His family had been taken. All his wealth had been taken. His health had been taken. And he's tempted to lie in the dirt and curse God and die. What a crisis in life. What a place to be tested. Jesus' testings. When Jesus is tempted by the devil, the devil offers him everything, if you like. It fast forward. The kingdom now. All this stuff now. The kingdom, if you like, without Calvary. Yet Jesus will have none of it. But he withstands the testing. In a sense, it's not until we've been tested or faced crisis in our life that we actually know whether our faith in God is real. It's not until we've been through it a bit that we actually can answer those questions. Is your faith real today? Are you ready to be tested? Rowan Williams, the um, retired Archbishop of Canterbury, says this, and I think this is quite helpful. Don't assume you know the answer to that sort of question. Don't assume that you know what someone's made of until they're under pressure. We're coming towards a time when you really have to decide how much God matters to you. You really have to put your life on the line. Would we be found faithful or faithless? What does testing look like? What does testing look like? Well, obviously there are those things that we can push towards, if you like, the end of time, when we're told that persecution or whatever will get worse. But what about in my life today? What about in your life? Well, I can only talk from my own experience. But there are times in life when I'm tested and I start to want to blame God for bad things. I don't know if you ever do that. You come to a point and say, God, why have you let this happen to me? Why, is this, why have I had to go through this? 
Or perhaps you're there and your health has been taken away, away from you, or your wealth has been taken, or life is on the brink and you're, you're just there. And will you hang in there? Or will you give in and turn your back on God? Will you be tempted to the point of turning your back? Or perhaps you're even at a point today when everything you thought about God is being questioned. Where all the thoughts about the presence and the reality of God in your life is being stretched to the limit. Will you remain faithful in those places? Or will you turn your back? Will we hang in there? When in life we hit those moments, certainly in my life, when I've hit those type of moments, I think there's a danger of introspection. You know, when you start looking inside of yourself and you start um, almost going to the place of saying, well, I've got to find my way out of these situations. But then actually we open God's word and we find something rather different, an encouragement to a different way of living. So I've invented a word this morning. Instead of introspection, to have Christospection. Sounds like a word it'll do for today. But it's that idea of instead of looking inward, look outward and upward at who Jesus is. And we find this absolutely glorious verse from the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews a bit later on this year. But this says, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He went through it. He went through the testing, the trial, the crisis, the temptation, and yet he wouldn't turn his back on his heavenly father. What a person in Jesus we have to follow. Jesus, the son of God. So as we pray this prayer, as we plead with the Lord not to over-test us, not to take us through those times of crisis, we also know that the reality is that we do go through them. And that when we do, Jesus is there. Jesus knows what it's like, and Jesus knows what it means to overcome. Then we get a little word, but, deliver us from evil. The but could also be however, or instead, or there's many other linked words it could be um, that we could use as a translation, but deliver us from evil. Evil will always try and trip us up. As followers of Jesus, the more close you get to God, and I often find this, the more evil tries to trip you up and pull you away in different directions. Evil is a sad and dangerous reality in our world, isn't it? You look at the world around us and we see it so often. But evil at its core is rebellion against God. It's saying, actually, I think I know best. I'm going to go my own way. Forget what God wants. I'll set myself up as God. And that's what happens with human beings. It's what happens in the spiritual realms. It's what we find happens when the devil and his angels fall and they go off and do their own thing and set themselves up in opposition to God. Evil is a very dangerous reality in our world. It can seep into communities, into families, into towns and cities. Sometimes it is influenced by the evil one, by the devil himself. Sometimes it becomes systemic and it becomes very difficult to root out. I don't know about you, but I was hearing this thing on the news a few weeks back about how billionaires are getting richer and richer, while the poor in our society get poorer and poorer. And we see this huge gulf of wealth emerging between the very rich and the very poor. And yet it's almost impossible to work out how you do it. That evil has sort of got systemic. It's got involved in our whole way that the world operates. Evil also thrives in chaos, 
I don't know if you've ever found if you're in a time of crisis in life that actually evil can sneak in and you get pulled away by different things just because you are in that time of crisis. A temptation to collude with evil is actually often greatest when in ourselves we feel that we're on sinking sand. You look at our world today and you see chaos everywhere, don't we? Think of the last three years politically in this country. We couldn't have imagined that five years ago. You know, all the chaos that has ensued. You think of our world at the moment environmentally. You know, you only need to look at the floods that have happened this week to see that we live in a world that is in an environmental crisis. We could name religious, ethical, sexual, nationalistic, you name it. Our world seems to be in that place of crisis. Why? Well, so often it is because we have put eye at the center. And we have rebelled against God. We have not gone his ways. And it's led us into places of huge insecurity. Jesus says, pray to our Heavenly Father, who loves us, to deliver us from evil. There's a bit of a risk, I think, with this prayer. Sometimes it's sort of being used as a kind of superstitious prayer for protection. I don't know if you like visiting medieval cathedrals, but if you do, you'll have noticed gargoyles on them. You know, these rather hideous faces that are rather just fancy downspouts normally to get water off the building. But when they were first built, they were built to ward off evil spirits. And so there can be this thought that somehow we use this prayer as that kind of way. You know, if we pray this, we'll be safe from evil. Or, I should get Will to come up and read this, it might actually be far more like we read it, like this rather profound Scottish poem. From ghosties and ghoulies and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night... Good Lord, deliver us. I'm not even going to attempt the accent. But we use it as that kind of prayer. You know, a prayer against the scary stuff of life. Now, this prayer is that. It is about free us and protect us from that which is evil. But a lot of the evil that I encounter in my life does not need warding off by a gargoyle. But it actually needs acknowledging in my own heart that I'm complicit with it. That I've given into it. That I'm part of the problem not part of the solution. Now, there is evil in this world that announces itself. Sometimes we may see it in, face, in, in hate crime or in terror attacks or in war. We see it in the Gospels where evil spirits will inhabit a person and take them over. And deliverance means to be set free from that. And that is a reality today as well as in the time that Jesus was writing. But often in our life, Evil sneaks in, doesn't it? It starts off by looking something that's good, something worthy. At other times, it comes in during the time of crisis. But to be delivered from this evil, to pray this prayer and to understand actually what we're praying is as much how we respond to it as well as just a prayer of protection. So three things in terms of have been delivered from evil. The first thing is to recognize it. Recognize it. I don't know whether I should say what I plan to say here after that comment about me having a short fuse, but I'll say it anyway. There, there are times in life when I can get angry. I'm sure there are times when all of us can get angry, aren't there? And sometimes we can justify our anger by saying that something has wound us up. I'm just being strong for myself. You know, I'm standing up for myself, my rights, whatever. Actually, if we look a bit deeper in there, actually what we're doing is colluding with evil. 
We're doing stuff that is only going to exacerbate the problem. And so we need to recognize that, I believe, in our lives. If today, if you're becoming a workaholic, and work is everything to you, and you're turning your back on your family and friends because actually that's what you're doing, then in a way, we end up colluding with evil. We end up colluding with that which would take us to Christ and bring us to him. It's very easy, isn't it, to become addicted in life to things. Now, as a society, we always agree there are things that it's not good to be addicted to. Alcohol, drugs, violence, whatever it might be. And there's a kind of unanimous agreement that those are bad things. But, you know, those are the things that society agrees on. There are all kinds of other things that can ensnare us and take us away from our faith in Jesus. For those of us who were here last Sunday night, Mike Thompson was taking us through, I think it was Isaiah 42, one of the the suffering songs. And he was talking about how there are so many things in life that become acceptable addictions. But they're still addictions. They will still seek to control us. It might be that it's your phone. You know, you, you can't live without your phone. And if you don't look at it every five minutes, you feel less of a person. It might be that it's your emails. That actually you need to be soothed by knowing there's no more emails come in. It might be that it's, it's just a constant desire to treat yourself. Or it might be money or it might be sex. They might be things that masquerade as something good and positive initially. And they might be something positive in, in the right context. But if we're not careful, we can collude with them. And they can be something that holds us and robs us of our freedom in Christ. One writer puts it like this, and I think this is incredibly hard-hitting. Evil reroutes human beings away from dependence on God onto vain self-reliance, bedazzled by a misplaced sense of duty duty that runs like heroin into the bloodstream. It grips us, it holds us, and we need delivering from it if we're to be all that Jesus calls us to be. So I think the first thing is to recognize where we see evil. Second thing is repentance. You know, as we say much of this prayer, this prayer is corporate. It is about us as well. It's not just an individualistic prayer. But it's a prayer that has to have legs. Otherwise, it just becomes that superstitious prayer to keep us free from those things that are outside of us that we we don't want to have any involvement with. And so to be delivered from evil involves repentance. You know, when I pray, I think one of the biggest changes that happens is the change that happens in my own heart. I don't know if you find that when you pray we become more closely aligned with God's will because we're seeking his purposes. And so when we pray, do deliver us from evil, we start to see those things in our own life where we have colluded with evil, where we are going down roads that are actually dangerous roads. And it's a, it's a prayer whose response is to put our illusions down, put those things down that we would think we're right about, and to accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness. Paul writes in Colossians 2.15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You know, the good news about this passage today is evil is a defeated enemy. Jesus has done away with evil. But until he returns and becomes all in all, it still rumbles on in the background. The other good news is that Jesus died on the cross to take away our sin to take away our collusion with evil, to take away those things that would hurt us and bring us down. 
Deliver us from evil is a cry that leads to repentance. And thirdly, I'm doing well with alliteration this morning. It's also restoration. We recognize, we repent, and then the good news is that we are gloriously restored. Look at this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, God is faithful. If we pray this prayer and we believe what Jesus has done, if we come in repentance, if we do what Jesus said at the beginning of Mark's gospel when he says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. If we do that, then we become free. We become free. It's not a one-off thing. We have to keep doing it because we get pulled back. But if we keep doing that and live a life that models this prayer, we walk into freedom. So as we draw this prayer to a close, I think the question I'm left with is, am I a Lord's Prayer type of Christian? Or am I still wrapped up with my own agenda? You know, will I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, and actually mean it, not just say it, but actually resonate, having that resonating deep within my, my life? Am I a person who is dependent on God? Or I do, do I have illusions that actually I'm self-dependent? Am I a person who is both forgiven, but also the forgiver? And am I somebody who in these verses will seek Jesus and put away evil? Be ready for the testing and be focused on Christ. We could finish it off with those great words that we pray at the end. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The words of the ancient church that saw it was fit to round this prayer off with an acclamation that actually God's kingdom is coming. It is here, it has broken out, but it is coming in power. Will we be a people who are ready for that? So I want to just leave us with a couple of questions from this morning. You may be sat here this morning and you may actually be in the time of trial. It may be worse than trial. It may actually be a time of crisis. If you are, can I encourage you not to go through that time alone? We're, this is an us prayer. You know, we do this together. When we're in crisis, we need to make sure we're not doing that alone. Can I encourage you this morning, whether it's with the prayer team after the service, whether it's with somebody you've come with or a, a close Christian friend, whoever it is, to get that support, to pray with one another. What a privilege to be part of the body of Christ where we can do that. But don't do that alone. Don't be in crisis alone, if that is where you are today. And the second thing, is there evil in your life with which you are currently complicit? Are there things going on in your heart, in your life, in your behavior, in the way that you're you're living, that actually ingrained in your life, you are agreeing with evil at the moment? And actually Jesus is calling you back to repentance, to recognition, and then you'll be gloriously restored. What does it mean to put that prayer into action? What does it mean for you today? I'm just going to leave a couple of moments of silence. If the worship team could come up, then I'll lead us in prayer. But let's just reflect on those couple of questions as we brought this prayer to a close.